Morning, uh, Duncan Green here from, uh, with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. <clears throat> My brain is a bit jellified at the moment because um, it's a heat wave in Britain, which is quite rare. Um, I, if you can hear a whirring in the background, I've got the fan on. Um, and by about midday, um, my brain shuts down. So um, uh, please be um, tolerant if I talk even more rubbish than usual. Um, <clears throat> first post this week was by uh, me with Irene Hout, uh, the head of research at Oxfam. Um, and we've been having a conversation about what kind of research should inform COVID responses, looking at what's um, what the gaps are and where we need to be putting uh, resources and, and uh, talk to a few other people in DFID and, um, and a couple of universities about this. A slurp of coffee. Um, and I think the, the, yeah, the, the general message is we're, we're reaching the end of the road for COVID expert opinion based on what was happening in, in previous pandemics or what uh, the data we've got before COVID broke out. So we need to shift gears to investing in new data. And that means both qualitative and quantitative. And that obviously raises all sorts of issues around um, uh, lockdown and um, inability, yeah, unable uh, researchers not being able to travel, talk to people directly. Um, so that means a lot of it will have to be remotely gathered. Now, remote gathering, you can do by sort of big data scraping exercises. And the quant sort of work seems to be getting on quite well with that. Um, if you want to do qual, if you want to talk to people about their opinions and feelings and yeah, what they're experiencing, it's a lot harder to do that if you don't already have a relationship with them. So what you're seeing emerging is a lot of uh, research exercises where people are going back to communities or individuals who they've already worked with in the past and talking to them about COVID. So there's a kind of prior investment in relationships. For example, a piece I posted on not long ago about some really nice work by Naomi Hussein and Brack um, doing those sort of interviews with um, 20 communities in Bangladesh to just find out how people are experiencing um, the, the pandemic. We need new and better narratives that, that you know, that there's a lot of... Um, an example, like what's going on in Africa? You know, uh, is it doing better than the north because the numbers are lower? Or is it facing a crisis only slower than than Europe and North America, which is what the WHO fears? Or is it actually a catastrophe? It's just that no one's doing the testing and lots of people are dying without it being recognised, which you also hear. So the narratives are a little bit vague, but also, you know, although the we may have flattened the curve on the virus in many countries, we, sh we certainly haven't flattened the curve on research. There is an avalanche of research emerging at the moment. And no one can keep abreast of it. So a key gap that we identified was um, syntheses, that you really need people or organisations or institutions or a process to keep abreast of all this stuff emerging and say, and, uh, and say what have we learned? What have we unlearned? What is different? What is, what is exciting or surprising? Um, we identified a bit of a risk of what journalists call bigfooting when you're, you know, you're a freelancer in some country which is not high up the global um, news values and, and you just churn away doing your freelance work and then suddenly an earthquake happens or you know, um, a big, a major political event happens. The first thing that, go, that happens next is that somebody from head office flies in knowing absolutely nothing about um, your country and starts talking stuff to camera because they are bigfooting you and you end up just being a fixer. Something a bit similar is going on in research where people who built up 
you know, research relationships are suddenly being pushed aside and a, there's a kind of return back to extractive, let's get the data, let's find out what's going on, people coming in and, and, and messing up what's gone before. And then finally, something which has always annoyed me since I worked on trade about 10, 15 years ago, which is that people are infatuated with models because models, although they often have disclaimers, look as though they're telling the future. And that has an enormous attraction to um, to policymakers. So you've now got what you know what some people call mathiness. That if you put an equation, you come up with a model. You 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 know it gives a kind of veneer of predict uh, prediction and credibility. Um, and we really need to question some of those the, the the reliance on modeling and get and start doing a lot more empirical work, which means going back to you know, generating new data, qualitative and quantitative, about what's actually going on now to take, a, you know, to, to, to balance whatever we're getting, the, the guesswork that comes from modelling. So where do we go from here? <clears throat> I think we've got to get better at looking, at observing. Um, LSE and Oxfam have got an interesting collaboration just starting on identifying emergent agency. You know, what what is coming up out of communities and uh, countries and and, and um activists in response to the pandemic and the government's responses to the pandemic. Um, we need more qualitative research, uh, as I said. I think more attention to fragile and conflict-affected settings where in those places the standard responses, you know, focusing on the state and CSOs are even less likely to work. So what is going on in places like Myanmar or Congo or Somalia? Um, we, we really need uh, a close look at that. And then, as I said, more syntheses. Somebody needs to be pulling this stuff together or it'll just be overwhelming. Next, uh, uh, the next post was by my colleague on um, from Poverty to Power, Maria Faciolince, who's done one of her... Every now and then she does these blockbuster resources lists, which people love. They get endlessly re you know, uh, tweeted and retweeted and picked up. And she's done one very appropriate on anti-racism in development and aid. It's got, um, it's, I totally recommend, I'm not going to try and talk, it, talk you through it because there's so much in there, but it's, um, it's got videos, it's got readings, it's got organizations to follow or link to, and uh, a few subheads. So the first is on racism, aid and development. So this is the kind of bringing it back home thing of what level of racism exists in aid, uh, in, in the aid business, in the aid sector, and what to do about it. And I think it's, it's pretty deeply rooted. There's been a lot of introspection going on because of Black Lives Matter and before then. And uh, um, I think that she's got a very good video of a big conversation about this, um, uh, which, which took, play re took place recently. Changing organisational culture. So if, if, if development or aid organisations are racist on so, in some level, how do you change their cultures? Um, and then a, something that, that we've been working on quite a lot, which is decolonizing knowledge in development. How is it that African studies uh, associations exist mainly outside Africa? Why is the, the way that development is written about so white, so external? And how do we how do we decolonize that? And what constitutes knowledge? And, you know, is peer reviewed journaling the only way to generate useful knowledge? No, I don't think so. Um, and then finally, who should I be listening to? A great set of links. So do go and look at that if you're, if you're, if you're sort of taking out that advice that everybody should have a, some kind of personal action plan around racism and the Black Lives Matter moment. Then I think this is a pretty good place to start if you work in the aid or development sector or you're studying in it. 
I then uh, did a little links I liked, and this week it's all about um, what some um, humorists have called FCD off uh, or fucked off uh, as it's uh, pronounced. Um, this is the merger between the UK Foreign Office and the UK Department for International Development. And there's been a lot of analyses, some looking for silver linings, saying, well, this could improve the politics. This, you know, this, this, this could mean that the British presence globally is more um, joined up. The majority of people saying this is a disaster. This is done for short term political expedience and it's going to undermine the, 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 all the work that's gone into trying to make DFID. Um, a really good aid organization but there's some good good links in there so if you're interested in this debate and it's you know it's important it's a lot of money it's for 15 billion pounds of uk aid but it's also about you know what is the future if there is one for the aid and development sector given the criticisms and given this this latest decision so it's a big it's a big i think a, a big moment in in terms of um the aid project if you like Next, I had a sort of personal reflection um, on the weight of history in shaping COVID responses. So this is just something I noticed. I mean, it's not, it's not particularly original. It's mentioned in lots of articles, but I put it together, which is the places that have done well in terms of their COVID responses have often done so because society has a kind of immune response based on a previous pandemic or ep epidemic. So in Kerala, it was Nipah, uh, rather one of the lesser known um, uh, virus epidemics um, but there was a great piece in the Guardian on that China had SARS North Korea weirdly had Middle East Respiratory Syndrome uh, MERS um, and then yeah, the, it, it appears that Ebola certainly has some lessons for what's going on in West Africa uh, Uganda and the DRC whereas the worsted areas like Europe and the US have just uh, their collective understanding at least going into COVID was uh, well this is just flu isn't it um, we've we've got a vaccine for flu. It's um, you know we deal with flu every year, so maybe that led to a kind of lack of an institutional or of a societal immune response uh, in those countries, um, and that might also explain another oddity, which is before COVID, people were putting together global rankings of pandemic preparedness. You know, are governments and countries prepared for the next pandemic? And guess who came top? the US. So clearly something is amiss, some gap between what has been measured and what actually happens. And maybe it's that historical element or obviously politics, you know, recent politics in the US. Something needs to explain why there is such a disparity between what we thought meant preparedness and what actually turned out to be preparedness. And this all brought, brought me back to a, a quote from Marx, which I, I love the excuse for re-quoting um, about the interaction between history and human agency. Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And it is that fascinating question about, are, are you for, is everything foretold by your history? No, you have some degree of agency, but it's not. Yeah, you know, it's not just up to you. You will work within the bounds set by the legacy of history, and that seems to be what's playing out on COVID. And then finally, this week, I did an interview right at the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic, and then sort of shelved it for a bit um, because no one wanted to talk about anything about uh, except COVID. And this was with um, one of the really bit sort of prominent 
economist, heterodox economist around the UN system, Deepak Nayar. And Deepak's got a book called Resurgent Asia, which is, I think he says, the first book by an Asian about this extraordinary process, yeah, which, which talks about the extraordinary resurgence of the whole continent over the last 50 years. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the, the great divergence that, you know, Asia in many ways is merely bouncing back to where it was before colonialism. Colonialism led to this extraordinary division of labor where all manufacturing was kept in Europe and Asia was turned into a producer of, of raw materials and massively impoverished along the way. And since 1960 or so, it has bounced back and is now you know, regaining its place in history, which is about half the world's economy and half the world's people. Um, and we talked about some of the characteristics. So I'll give you a couple of quotes from him. So unlike Latin America and Africa, most, most countries in Asia had a long history of well-structured states and cultures that were not entirely destroyed by colonialism. That meant that political independence, which restored their economic autonomy and enabled them to pursue national development objectives, was an important underlying factor in their quest for catch-up. So they had effective states waiting to go once they got out of colonialism and boy has it you know take taken off um and he's got an interesting reflection that he, he's he's not a raving lefty he's he sees himself as quite orthodox in some ways he says i believe that the state and the market are both institutions evolved by humankind to organize society they're complements not substitutes the two institutions must adapt to each other in a cooperative manner over time and success in Asian development was about managing this evolving relationship and by finding the right balance in their respective roles, which also changed over time. And one of the things he says in the book, which is quite interesting, was you, know, you have the very well-known story of essentially very uh, centralised authoritarian Asian states taking off the sort of South Korea's under the military and China under the Communist Party. But he says it's also possible in democracies. And what he sees in Asia, and he, you know, he's from India, um, is that if the state is not particularly strong or effective, institutional checks and balances can compensate for the lack of it. Uh, and that, that, that has worked too. And that leads into quite a sort of optimistic take, which is that you know, there's an alternative to having um, a developmental state run by an authoritarians, and that is to have democracy. And so he concludes that it is possible for Africa to do in the next 50 years what Asia did in the past 50 years. But it has to begin with a political transformation because the role of the government is critical. And on that optimistic note, I shall leave you. Have a great weekend. Talk next week. Bye.